You're listening to the Big Speak Podcast, a program populated by the voices of thought leaders, successful CEOs, and renowned entrepreneurs. We'll hear their exclusive tips, behind-the-scenes insights, and off-the-record stories. Pieces of knowledge only available from Big Speak's unique slate of keynote speakers and business leaders. During these episodes, we'll meet just a few of the best speakers in the business, learn their unique skill sets that enabled them to inspire audiences on the biggest stages in the world. Inspiration begins now. I want to introduce you to someone I'm excited to have a conversation with. Chris Barton is an entrepreneur. He's a speaker at Big Speak. He was the founder of Shazam. I want to hear a little bit about that. You've worked for the biggest names out there in tech, and yet what thread runs through everything for you is about being around entrepreneurs. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say actually an interesting thread for, for the companies that I've worked with, so Google, uh, almost eight years, Dropbox for four years, and then Shazam, um, they're obviously all created by entrepreneurs. Um, but the other commonality is that they're all companies that were obsessed with simplicity, Hmm. Um, and, hmm. and that's something that I'm very attracted to as an entrepreneur uh, because I think there's so many things that can be created in the world um, that are can be useful, but when they're really most useful is when the person that's first using it, you can just use it and it just works. Um, and that's something that I find um, so enamoring. Um, and, uh, and I think that it's something that's hard to accomplish in some certain cases. To make something so simple is so hard to accomplish, and that's something that those three companies um, – know, solved through applying very, very difficult technologies to make something just for the end user very simple. Well, therein lies the trick. I mean, that's why uh, it, it tech feels like magic, because you take something that's phenomenally complex and you make it so I swipe left or right. And there's a whole bunch of stuff going on behind that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a founder of a 3D animation software company. And I had opportunity last night to watch a guy. We were on a, a call, and I was watching him do some work for TEDx. And I looked at it and I said, you know, I don't think we could get away with that kind of interface today because it's really hard. So to that point of making it simple, what's the question you challenge an entrepreneur with who comes and pitches you an idea? So, oh, man, I've got this great idea. And, and does your simplicity filter kick in right away? I, I would say it it does in the sense that like I like to think about well one thing I like to think about is you know what's the value that you're providing to someone and is it something that is really game changing is it something that's like really is making life for them just orders of magnitude better um, and not just a little better because if it's not if it's if it's orders of magnitude better then it's something that you can see will have momentum on its own if it's solving just a small little problem that may be significant for the entrepreneur but really not that important to most people it's going to be a big uphill battle to to get real adoption um, so that's the first question is is it something that's really pervasive things that something that resonates with the masses um, whether it's you know obviously con- if it's a consumer play or a business play but either way is it going to resonate with with all these potential users out there um, and then the second thing is I always think of is what do you have that's unique because you know if it's really not that unique or you know it maybe it be unique today but tomorrow it could be built by Google Facebook and Amazon um, and so you know is there something that you have that's gonna be you know you ha- there's a reason why you're gonna be able to accomplish this and even if it proves to be super successful it's gonna be very hard for everyone to catch up with you uh, because th- that sort of sustainable advantage is something that's really core into building a successful business because if you don't have it then you're really just inventing ideas that are gonna be replicated and 
and all the value is going to be realized by the big companies that have all the all the the power, the money, the the reach to users. We um, we used to have a, this matrix this, that if you had a new idea, you had to run it through this matrix to see if it kind of checked all these boxes that you're saying, right? It's got to be big. It's got to fit the masses. It's got to be. I mean, all of those things and. There was the last one that the CFO put in, which says, and it's going to generate $10 million of top line revenue, mm-hmm. right? And so it's like, we love to have ideas as long as they're at least $10 million ideas. And I get a sense that at the scale you're playing at, is it a $100 million idea? Because hmm. now I'm in. Now you've got me interested. Now you've got big money interested. Now we can talk to the masses. So if you to fill in that line, it has to reach that metric. What's that number? Do you think? Hmm. Well, actually, so actually, I am actually less obsessed with having that number be really, really big. In fact, um, I think that you can create really amazing small businesses as well. They don't become as famous, you know. So they're not the next Snapchats and. Uh, Facebooks and so on, um, but they can still be very financially viable. So they may not they may not have hundreds of millions of users, but if they have the right economics, they can be very profitable, amazing businesses. Um, but of course, the equation is that, that if you're going to create one of those smaller businesses, then it, you better need a lot less capital because you don't want to raise a hundred million dollars for a company that's eventually only going to be worth twenty million dollars. Um, and it's that ratio is so key. So that's the reason that I think many entrepreneurs do go for the very big businesses is because they, they realize that, okay, to build this thing, I'm going to need first $10 million and then $20 million, so a total of $30 million. And if I'm going to raise $30 million, I better sell something for $100 million. And it's, it's pretty hard to build a business that's going to be worth $100 million. Um, I think it's fascinating for entrepreneurs to think of it this way of, wow, I think I could build something that could make several million dollars a year, be worth 10 or 15 or $20 million, but that means I've got to be able to do it for just a couple million dollars. Um, and that that is a real art in doing that and thinking very nimbly, in a nimble way, thinking um, scrappy, thinking how you can get momentum. Because the way to get to that is to find is to get something out that starts to trickle in the revenue so that the thing that's funding the company is not investors, but your own revenue. Um, and actually, that even happened to some great companies like Google. Um, I always like to point out that Google really was funded not really by venture capitalists. I mean, yes, there were some early venture capitalists, but one, the company that funded Google was Yahoo that was hiring Google in the early days to run their search. Um, and so that's what allowed Google to kind of bring in a big check and year after year innovate, innovate, innovate until it became a huge company itself. Um, and that's the real art is how do you find that kind of early revenue that's going to basically the, become the funding for your growth. That um, having uh, customers, um, I think the uh, uh, Frank Robinson said, go sell it, then build it. Right, go sell it, go get some customers for that idea first. In fact, if you talk to the Startup Weekend, anybody who's gone through one of these Startup Weekends, it's part of the metric that you get judged on. Did you talk to 100 people on Saturday around mm-hmm. that idea that you had on Friday? And did you get a 100 different points of view on that? And people who said, yeah, I'll buy that. Mm-hmm. And to that point of being able to have adoption early that's a huge win when you do go and need big money or even need money from someone else. It doesn't even have to be big. Yeah. I'm going to go get money from someone else. Is there someone who wants to buy this? I want to go back to this, um, the idea of pervasive and the masses. It kind of feels 
because we're, I feel like we're surrounded by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurialism and classes on it and books on it and podcasts. And I mean, it's just, it's everywhere. And I think that everyone wants to be a unicorn. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Yeah. It's, it's like everyone wants to be Brad Pitt, you know, in the movies or, you know, or one of the major movie stars and so on. It's just the, the glamour. They, they read, you read the headlines and you think, wow, look at this company. It's going, I mean, what do journalists care about when they write articles about companies? They, want, they care about the IPO because it's all that big, that big dollars coming in the door. And they love the idea of, you know, everyone's enamored by those big dollars and the big names and the big brands. Um, and I do think that that is the sort of star factor that attracts some entrepreneurs. Um, but I also think there's some entrepreneurs that just want to build just a great business. You know, they, they, they're attracted less by the, the fame and the big dollar signs, but more by the, the lifestyle of being able to like cr- live, a, live and breathe and have a career where they're essentially, they're the boss where they're creating things, where they're having impact on the world. They're not just running around doing what someone else asked them to do. Um, and they, and they, every little inch of every little idea that they come up with adds value to just 100% the thing that they've created. It's incredibly satisfying. Um, and that's what they're attracted to. Um, and for, the, you know, for those things, it's less about the, the kind of the starlight. Um, and less about are you going to be the big IPO that's on the front page. Um, and there's so many of those businesses that are successful and they're the, under the radar and you don't read about them. And in fact, a lot of them don't want to be read about, um, but there's a lot of really amazing businesses out there that fit that profile. When you're, I'm going to guess you, you've, you are a speaker. I mean, where this is a big speak podcast. And I'm thinking about when you're talking to a room of these bright-eyed entrepreneurs. I mean, they're like, oh man, I, if I could just get just a whisper of what you have done and, and be successful. How do you, it, I feel like, I wanna say burst that bubble a little bit, but how do you give them a little bit of reality pill? Well, um, one thing I would, I would describe to them is my experiences in, in ideas that I thought might be really viable and failed, um, and I've definitely had those. Um, I, I sometimes, uh, I love to tell kind of anecdotes of just how hard it is to kind of break it into the big time. Um, you know, I, I sometimes joke that you could put an app on the app store that if you download it, you get a dollar and it would be hard to get downloads um, because because it's just hard to get downloads to anything. And that's just in the app world. Um, I, uh, I always like to hone in on, I think there's often an assumption that um, that if you have a great idea, it's just, you're gonna find, it's just gonna be very successful. And I always I'd like to emphasize that it's not the case. And in fact, actually one of, I always think this, um, for many entrepreneurs, there are actually two innovations, two side-by-side innovations. One is the, the idea, and then the other is how they're gonna break it big. And, and, and there's two parallel things. Like for, for example, like Skype. Um, Skype was you know, an idea, we're gonna make free phone calls from computer to computer. And then they had this, how we're gonna break it big, which is they had the Kazaa database because the founders had created that. And so they're gonna blast it out to this huge user group of people that had been doing music downloads as a way to kind of instigate and get the critical mass of, of user adoption for person-to-person phone calls. Because without critical mass, you're not, you don't get any momentum. Um, and there's many examples of with PayPal, with it, with paying people, giving bounties and so on to, to adopt the service. Um, and uh, Airbnb really struggled in the early days in, in trying to get that initial adoption. Dropbox, you know, gave people free space and as a currency to get people to, to 
pass the word around. But often that's the second innovation. So you have this one innovation in Dropbox, it's synchronization file storage in the cloud combined with this other innovation, which is how, how we're going to break through that wall and get that massive user adoption. And many entrepreneurs just have one without the other. And, uh, and then that usually is not a great outcome. You've just explained uh, a philosophy I've had around software development and innovation in a whole nother world within computer animation software, which is my background, which was there was that initial idea and only one out of 100 people I'm going to even have that. Yeah. Okay. So now you've got that idea. Great. Let's party. Uh, but now I need to turn that idea into a product. So I have to make a thing out of it. And that's, I'm going to lose another 99% of the people because they don't know how to turn it into a thing. And then the, the next one for, in my way of looking at it was now I have to turn that into a profitable business. Right, which is, yeah. and to your point, I like the way you phrase it, though. It's better is that there is that one innovation, like you had the idea. Now we've got to, how do I turn this into a product? Then, then how do I turn it into a profitable business? And I think yours is, is the, the one above that is how do I scale that thing, which is a whole nother bit of innovation. And you need that to get to the profitable business. Right. They are, the right? profits come from the users and the, rev the revenue comes from the users. And, and how do you get all those users? And almost always, it's not economical to just go spend marketing marketing money to get them. So, I mean, like actually another an example just came to mind is you talk about animation, Pixar. I mean, that was when, when yeah. Pixar was funded by Steve Jobs, it was a company that basically made hardware for animation. Yep. And that didn't work. And get, selling those computers was not as didn't work out as well as selling Apple I computers. I bought one. <laughs> yeah, you, so you would know. So, and so then they had to think, okay, well, what, you know, we, this, this isn't working. What are we going to do? Maybe we can just showcase by creating an animated movie, Toy Story 1. And then, and then that, that will kind of showcase, and that before that then became a great business, but a very different type of business, a creative business. Um, so yeah, so, so so it's definitely you know there's, there's that art, and how are you gonna how are you gonna break through that wall? How are you gonna do something that's gonna just start to create momentum? Um, and um, and it's something that's a f many steps or a very very separate from the core innovation of what it is that you're creating. I think is is very key. Ed Catmull, um, when I was up there, because they used our software to do modeling and animation before they rewrote everything themselves. And he looked at me, and, and I think we were talking like for a million dollars or something. He goes, we make billion dollar products. Why are we talking about a million dollars? And I was like, okay, got mm -hmm. it. I got it. When you are talking to groups of people about innovation, I, I think of two um, two audiences. One is the the entrepreneur class let's call it that and then when you're talking to a business that's trying to stimulate and cultivate an innovation culture inside i think those are two different stories tell me why they're different well i, I think that uh i mean it, ultimately companies you know they they would like to they'd like to follow a parallel path uh, for that entrepreneurial kind of value creation. They don't want to miss out on it, you know, and, and again, I spent eight years at Google watching this happen and they try to, they actually try to, in many cases, try to foster an environment um, where they can incentivize uh, and also incentivize the creation of these new products and concepts and businesses um, and also give them the kind of raw uh, passion and sort of nimble kind of creativity that that startups have so that they'll go down a path that leads to a great outcome um, 
So I think that, um, I mean, I guess the core differences is kind of the motives of, of the people involved. Um, entrepreneurs, are, I think, are often quite different, cut from a different cloth than the people that you have in companies. Um, and it's a self-selection bias. Uh, and people that have worked at companies, they're, they're choosing to go get a job at a company. Um, and entrepreneurs are choosing not to get a job at a company. Um, and that is, comes from very core different ways of thinking about the world and what's important to you and what risks you're willing to take and how you're willing to live your life and how out of the box you might think in order to kind of drive towards solutions um so i think that you know that's that's probably the core difference is that the types of people you're talking to and the way they think um is it might be a little bit more programmatic in terms of when you're speaking to audiences and companies that are they're kind of following maybe more of a set of rules that hopefully would lead to this sort of innovation and creativity and so on to think like a startup um, and then whereas with entrepreneurs you're um it's less programmatic and a little bit more uh chaotic um but kind of working with like the different kind of brains that entrepreneurs have and everyone is unique and different um but the commonality uh is that they tend to just think about things by questioning them questioning everything and uh questioning all assumptions and um not just thinking in terms of parallels and analogies as as we often do um as elon musk would say you know from first principles uh, which is uh, allows you to kind of just kind of you know really get down to the root and think about okay what can we do that's gonna that's gonna just solve problems and change the world and and think in a way that hasn't been thought of before. That's Leonardo's first principle, right? Curiosity. That's mm -hmm. the num the number one thing. So the 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 external the entrepreneur who's got there. I think um, there was a bit flipped at birth. And they're 1%. I mean, they're, we make terrible employees. We're not great leaders, but we're really good at making things and seeing problems and solving them and thinking as systems thinkers, all that. I'm going to say we because I've been doing this since I was 12. So I'm one of those guys. Mm -hmm. Terrible working inside a company, but I've done that. And inside a company, they'll, they'll lovingly call them intrapreneurs, and they want to foster that culture Yet, isn't it systemically everything working against them? Because, in fact, the people who are are not in the room. And that's, is that a tough question for the managers or the management or leadership to go, hmm? How are we going to solve that problem? Yeah, how do we create a culture that does that when, in fact, the people who we really want are allergic to this culture? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's a really tough problem. I mean, it's, there's been many, many examples of failures um, in, in trying to tackle this problem, and and despite some very significant um, sort of uh, attempts to solve it, uh, famously at Google, I remember they uh, they actually created a team known as the Wave Team, and they were going to reinvent messaging. Uh, and that team was given sort of your uh, kind of a, an open slate to go and think about how they could reinvent messaging. Um, and then they were they were sort of handpicked, sort of highly highly talented people from across Google, engineers and product folks and so on. And then not only that, they were sent off to Australia. Um, and they would. How say, far away can we get these people? <laughs> Seventeen hours. Yes. Yeah. Exactly, and just said, look, you know, you're just going to be put. You're going to be like a true startup, outside the walls of Google, and you're just going to just go and just work on this, and just think about how to solve this problem in a completely new, refreshing way. And uh, it, and they, there was so much hype around it within Google for so long. Um, wow, what's going to come from this? It's going to be the next big thing. It was like a flop, and within a month of launch. Um, so it's it's a. Uh, I mean, you know, what was missing there? Uh, I mean, I think. 
you know, again, it's maybe just that raw scrappiness, desperation, um, almost that the entrepreneurs have, um, of just, you know, you don't just have someone paying your checks and, and, and saying, come on, innovate something. It's more that I've got to just, I've got to do something different. I've got to figure out a way that, um, to, to come up with something completely innovative. And, and I, I feel like entrepreneurs, they have to have both this sort of confidence in what they're doing, but also sort of a desperation, a fear, um, of like, of, of not wanting to, of a fear of just, of, of not being good enough and so trying harder and trying harder and trying harder so it's sort of a weird combination of this confidence but also fear um, that i think is sort of this magical uh, combination that it's an alchemy isn't it mm-hmm. right it's um I, I think there's also the imposter syndrome comes up yeah right because they're like hey no i thought of this thing no it's the thing right you know when when you talk to that true entrepreneur is this they so believe this and their certainty, I think certainty is a is one of those check boxes. Like, how certain are you? I mean, it because you're going to need to stand there in front of and customers and investors and the market and and engineers who are saying, no, that's not how you do it. And he says, no, I'm sorry, dude. This, this we're going to do it like this. So where does certainty figure in with you? Yeah. How how are you? How certain are you? So I I feel um. I tend to quite ever since a, a kind of teenage years or maybe earlier, I, I questioned everything. Um, I think my the, the report that came back from my eighth grade biology teacher to my parents said, uh, um, "Your your son is really um, sort of almost inappropriate in the way he sort of questions all these things that I say in the lecture." Um, and um, it was negative feedback, but I think ultimately it, it sort of hope, pays off hopefully in the world of entrepreneurship. Um, and so um, I mean, definitely as I've um, as I've gone about um, sometimes solving some really difficult things that are way outside my expertise, um, and I approach people that are experts in these areas, sometimes they'll say, oh, no, this can't be done because of this. And I tend to think, I tend to not, not believe it and just think, no, oh, I, I think it can be done. I just need to find some, you know, a, a different angle uh, or, or a different viewpoint. Um, and it's just it's sort of, I, I, so I just, I do think I have this sort of driving, uh, just I sort of can see, you know, I can see the, the final, like where it's going to be, you know, oh, completely. And um, and then uh, and then I just, I'm just going to just keep trying until I get there because I know, I just know it's possible. We call it the new reality. Oh, okay. I always think about it, the new reality. So, so if I have a thesis, um, so in the in the form of a TED talk, right? So I have this thesis, a core idea. It's something the world needs to know, and they need to know it now. And I've got permission to tell this idea. And after I've laid out my point and proven my case. Now there's this call to action to get you either to change your thinking or to support my action or whatever that is. But I also have to paint a picture of a new reality mm-hmm. that you agree and you can see. Uh, I, I'll say it's paint a picture of possibility. Like what would the, what would it be like if you had this? Mm-hmm. I know you don't, but but if you did, would you like that thing? Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Can you make me one of those? Well, yeah. Let's let's get working on that. Mm-hmm. So it's again, I'm. I I mono a mono with you because we're both of that mindset, but I feel like we're in this rare slice of people, and people want to be like that. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to you standing in front of you know a thousand people doing a keynote speech. What attracts you most to that environment? I I love um, being able to tell some of the stories of of, mm. of you know my personal experiences and, and and what I went through and the challenges that I uh, had to overcome and um, how how 
you know, we overcame some of these things with myself, along with some amazingly talented people that I was able to surround myself with. Um, and, um, and then sometimes when you tell these stories, because people are not aware, they're just not aware, they kind of see an end product and they say, oh yeah, Shazam, an application used by most people I know, and you know, over a billion people have downloaded it. But they, you, they don't realize, sort of, wow, what it takes to get to that. And, um, and when you tell some of the stories of what you have to overcome, and, and, it, and they're very much representative of what m almost all entrepreneurs have to overcome in getting to wherever they got to. Um, I think it's really, um, I, I love watching how the audience responds to when they realize, wow, that's incredible. That's incredible, these things. Like you can, you can almost see in their eyes, like would I even have kept on going if, if I had encountered that? You know, would, would I have ever thought of a way to solve that problem or get around it or over, overcome it? Um, and, uh, and then you can feel how they're inspired by it. Um, and they definitely are inspired by it. I mean, you talk to so many of them after, after the talk and they come up to you and they're, they're so excited. Um, and, uh, and so it's that inspiration that is, I find so rewarding because, because they, you know, everyone has their own project that they're working on and it, and it may, you know, it might be their role in their business unit, in their company. It might be personal projects on the side, um, anything that kind of gives them a, a sense of productivity and moving forward and so on. And it could be personal things in their life, sports, you know, musicians, you know, all kinds of things. Um, and, uh, but I, that inspiration of just, wow, I'm, you know, when I, when I'm going to look at an obstacle as a challenge. Um, and, uh, cause I look, look how Shazam, you know, the Shazam team did that. Um, and think about all the other, you know, folks that have done that as entrepreneurs. And I, I'm going to just treat it that way as well. Because when you, I think when you see that others, you know, approach things that way, it can be very inspiring for yourself. Um, and that's what, that's what I find rewarding in the big audiences, um, telling those stories and having, you know, seeing the reaction. Uh, that you get. So as a speaker, because I love speaking to groups, I'm trying to figure out, do I like the, the 10,000 where you can hear your voice echo off the back wall? Or do you like that room of, of 20 and you've got people over a two and a half day period and you're kind of leading them through a workshop? Yeah, I tend to focus on the, the former, the, the large groups. Um, and um, w although I have... Uh, I have really enjoyed giving some talks to say a couple hundred um, folks. In some cases, they're, for example, like you know, graduate students and so on, or, or 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 a room full of entrepreneurs. And then when there's adequate time for some Q and A, you get some amazing Q and A, amazing. And and you, and you definitely get a t different type of Q and A in a room that has somewhere between twenty and and two hundred people than you do in a room that has five hundred to a thousand people. Um, it's something about it's sort of this curiosity where they'll you know they'll really you, know, you can tell that they put so much thought into kind of think well you know when you when you face this specific thing how did you deal with this and you think wow that's an amazing question and, and then you, great questions where the whole audience you can tell is is excited about the answer and i'm excited about kind of thinking wow i've never really been asked that before yeah and so um yeah that so i think that's that's the main difference between the what i call the smaller talks again being less than a couple hundred people versus the hundreds and hundreds of people do you like the hot seat? Hot seat on question Q and A. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess. I mean, it depends on what what the questions are. I guess. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel like I'm an some, expert in everything. Well, well none of us are. Yeah. Uh, s some people don't like the Q and A. It's like no, no questions. Oh right. Yeah. yeah. No questions. And then some. Um, uh, there was a guy we went to a business seminar, and you know we're going to learn all the secrets of business. And the guy gets up there and he goes, "You know they paid me fifty thousand dollars to talk to you for an hour." We're like, fifty grand for an hour? Okay, you're doing okay." Mm -hmm. He says, "But I'm going to tell you the answer in a minute." 
And then I got 59 minutes for questions. <laughs> and so do you want it? The secret to business, he said, was ask people what they want, then give it to them. Yeah. Any questions? And I was like, that's the job I want. I, I want it. to be that guy. But I, I love the hot seat because what it does is it's that real, and maybe it's my improv background. Yeah. But I like that real time, okay, we you've just laid out this great story which wove a bunch of different stories together and you brought it home and it's like you took something that was so personal for you but it was received universally by everyone mm -hmm. and now they want to come up and say oh come on Chris tell me tell me, give, answer this I just, I just love that yeah part. no I, I realize I, I guess I do enjoy it I, particularly when it's sort of you know People that are trying, that are aspiring to be entrepreneurs or create things, um, you can feel the passion, um, and it's fun to be asked the hard questions um, or be able to pass on some wisdom. Um, so yeah, I guess I guess I, I guess I do enjoy it. It is kind of fun, right? Because yeah. you get to um, you get to do that. Where'd you grow up? So I grew up in um, mostly San Diego. Uh, I, I was born in Chicago and, and had spent some childhood years in Oregon. Um, and then, um, but I had U I have European parents. So I have a British father and a French mother. So I, I always like to say I'm sort of American. I have a British passport and an American passport. Um, and what in, did they do? Um, my dad's a nuclear physicist. Um, okay. And they're both PhDs in physics, both my parents. Wow. So they're scientists, pure scientists. Yeah. Uh, my mom, they're both professors. Uh, of, my mom taught computer science, um, going back to the days of punch cards. Um, and my dad taught nuclear physics. Um, and um, yeah, so I grew up in a world of, of you know, science, essentially. Um, but I decided not to pursue more the business angle um, and just like the idea of working with sort of innovation uh, and then thinking about the kind of creative aspects. Because to me, business is the ultimate creative outlet uh, where you get to integrate you know, creativity across so many sort of uh, uh, you know, channels or fronts. Um, and uh, you know, whether it's marketing and branding and approach and thinking outside the box and you know, what, what do people want to buy, just you're, you're constantly being creative and solving things. And I just love being creative. That's, that's what really is ultimately my main motivation. So, um, so I thought I was going to combine, you know, these genius scientists, you know, bring them together to help kind of create something that's going to be really meaningful as a business and as a product to the world. When did that hit you? When did that occur to you that that's what you liked? Because you're sitting at dinner with mom and dad and we're talking particle physics and Fermi equations and are we going to go to CERN or not go to CERN? And, uh, he was like, no, I maybe I want to go to Stanford, or maybe I want to go to Harvard. I want to, I want to do something different. When did that, or maybe your first business that yeah. you said, okay. So I think I had lots of. So from as a child, all the way from being a young child, I always had lots of little businesses and projects I was doing. I created my own. Uh, haunted house, you know, I, for Halloween, that was like this very elaborate haunted house that anyone from the neighborhood can come visit. Um, I had, you know, various little small businesses delivering croissants to people's houses and, you know, chocolate chip cookies and you name it. Um, and, um, but in terms of actually, you know, you know, post college, you know, going into the real world and thinking I'm an actual, you know, I want to start my own business. Um, for me, that, that kind of crossover point was several years into my career, so it was not immediately after college. Um, it was actually when I was going back to do my MBA at Berkeley, and um, I remember sitting next to uh, another student who was one year ahead of me, who was in his second year at the MBA, and I was starting my first year. Um, and, I, and I said, oh, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm starting a company. Uh, I said, oh, wow, okay, that's interesting. And actually his company ended up going public, by the way. Um, it was a, you know, a real estate-oriented company. Um, but I said, oh, what did you do before business school? Uh, and he said, I was an Air Force pilot. 
And I kind of thought, wow, if, if an Air Force pilot can just go start a company, I have no excuses to not start a company just because it's not like you have to have a deep expertise in what it is that you're going to go start a company in. And I remember that being this sort of pivotal point for me where I thought that's it. Cause that's actually what I really want to do. I want to start a company as well. And I just decided pretty much on that day, which was in the first week of, of my business school, uh, two year MBA, um, that I'm going to embark on starting a company. I knew we would get there. There's always one of those conversations. Mm. Everybody, had that there was that snap in the story like the mm -hmm. story's going along just fine in improv we call it uh, the first unusual thing mm -hmm. and the first unusual thing was that you could have a conversation with a student who was an air force pilot who went and did a business and like and that's the snap in your story right yeah. that like oh hold it snaps you out of the status quo into oh i want to look at things differently and um all of those pieces, then everything changed, right? Yeah. Everything changed. What did Yogi Berra say? When you find a fork in the road, take it, right? And you did, uh, right? Yeah. It, even if it was just a, a lot of times it's just a subtle phase shift that then it just changed everything for you. I'm so glad you were sitting next to that guy because otherwise you wouldn't be sitting here today. And I, this has been a, and no an incredible be, conversation. And be able to recognize songs when they heard them. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, so, so tell us, how did you get involved with Big Speak? That was uh, sort of serendipity. I, I think it, 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 the, the roots started when I was giving some talks at tech conferences around the world, um, just really for fun. And they were big audiences, you know, four or 500 people, um, con conferences that were really focused on technology entrepreneurship. Um, and it was, for me, it was just sort of an opportunity to go and visit some interesting places like Helsinki in Finland and uh, Santiago, Chile, uh, Berlin and Germany and so on. So they were all really interesting experiences. And um, as a result of that, there were some videos that were um, published from those talks. And the Big Speak folks saw those and approached me. Um, and uh, Ken at Big Speak approached me. And, and so I had a coffee with him and I learned all about uh, the, the whole Big Speak uh, kind of avenue to the world. And uh, I got really excited about it. And so it all went from there. I love it. We're uh, we're both black belts together. That's how I know Ken uh, Master Sterling. Yes, we're. That's how I met him. Was on the mat. Yeah. And uh, wow. and he. I, I love what what they've done and the kind of the culture they've created for speakers and what they do and how they work with you guys and and this the whole idea of the podcast was to be able to have the people who are interested in you. There, you know, there's video and, and book and writing and all of that stuff, but. They kind of just would like to be able to call and talk to you and listen to you in a non-prepared speech, which we did today, which yeah. was fantastic. And yeah. thank you so much. I really, I really appreciate getting to know you. Yeah, thanks. It was great to chat with you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. We at Big Speak appreciate you listening to one of our many episodes. We hope you've enjoyed this exclusive and unique access behind the scenes of the keynote speaking world. Highlights from this episode are available on our website, bigspeak.com, along with the option to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. To learn more about this episode's guest or invite them to your special event, contact us at bigspeak.com.